Welcome to a special edition of the Darn Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share the latest installment from our ongoing Faculty Spotlight series, a series we call Office Hours. In this episode, I catch up with Anthony Palumba, a member of the communication faculty here at the Darden School of Business. Anthony teaches leadership communication and storytelling with data in the full-time MBA program, as well as management communication in the MS in Business Analytics program here at the Darden School of Business. This conversation touches on a lot of different topics, storytelling with data, current trends in media and entertainment, the future of advertising, so many things. If any of these topics sound of interest, this episode is highly recommended. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Anthony Palumba. Anthony, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining us. Brett, thank you so much for having me. This is a treat. I, I would otherwise be working on a research paper. So if, if there's an opportunity to talk to people, uh, this is a welcome reprieve. Thank you so much. All right, to our attendees, we're going to spend maybe the first 15, 20 minutes of this conversation setting the scene, learning a little bit more about Anthony. And then in the Back half, 30, 40 minutes of the conversation, we'll get into his research. Uh, as I mentioned, as before we get started, we're going to be talking about streaming, uh, movies, on-demand content, advertising, lots of interesting topics. If you have questions as we go along, uh, please feel free to ask in the Q&A. My colleague Maggie Dodson and I will keep an eye on the q and It's always nice to see what's on people's minds. Uh, but Anthony, let's start uh, with the same first question that we ask everybody comes on Office Hours. Tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you and what's your background? So, Anthony, uh, who are you and what's your background? Who am I and what's my background? Yes. So, I am Anthony Colomba. I am an assistant professor of communication at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. My research deals with a few trajectories, one being looking at how audiences engage in media services and products. And the second trajectory is looking at media business competition. And in particular, how technology can inform competition among media firms and entertainment firms as well. Excellent. And tell us a little bit more about how you got into this work. How did you get interested in media and entertainment? Yeah, so I was at Manhattanville College and I was on my way to becoming an entertainment lawyer. Or so I thought. So I majored in political science and history, did the pre-law track, right? Did everything that an, an aspiring attorney should take, I suppose. And in 2009, when I had graduated, uh, the recession had hit. And I was working as a legal assistant at an entertainment law firm at the time. And there was a New York Times op-ed that had come out and said, you know, we should be closing lower tiered or lower ranked law schools because the jobs just weren't there. Needless to say, this scared the lights, the daylights out of me as, as a 22-year-old. And I, I quickly realized this might not be a wise track. But I wanted to stay in the space. I was really struck by how my boss, who I still keep in, in, in touch with, uh, treated colleagues and clients. And I was really struck by working with artists. It's quite beautiful to, to be able to contribute to, to artistry. Um, and he was very good in managing clients. This made me want to get into television production a bit. And, and I kind of write as, as an amateur, I, I take stabs at screenplays as a, as a hobby. But I went to the Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse to earn a master's in television, radio, and film. 
But I quickly fell in love with data, Brett. I, I had actually taken a class in which one of the uh, faculty members, a former producer on Tron back in the 80s, was putting dots on a board and talking about big data with entertainment and this thing was coming. I was kind of looking around the room. I'm like, I don't think anybody realizes that this is a big deal. I also don't think I fully understand <laughs> what a big deal this is. And so there was no machine learning, data science, or artificial intelligence back then, back a decade ago. If you really wanted to dive deep into stats, you had to get a PhD. And so I was resolved in that, that that was the course of action for me. I looked up media management, media business programs. Uh, Florida was a, a top one, so I went to the University of Florida for my PhD. Um, I spent a year afterwards being a market research manager at Ipsos. I conducted survey work for CNN, HBO, Fox, Sports One, among others, but I missed academia and, and I wanted something a bit more challenging than copying and pasting uh, slide decks, though that is, that is a value task uh, to do. And so all of these experiences have informed where, where I've gotten to today. And so how do you get from there uh, to DART? What brought you to DART? <laughs> yeah, so in thinking about my trajectory, I really wanted to stay in, in New York. And so I'd been at CUNY, I'd been at St. John's University, but I knew that I wanted something more rigorous. I, I was earning top awards my first years at both of those places, and it, it became obvious to me that I needed something tougher and just meatier and something that would really drive me uh, to reach levels that I, I didn't know that I could. I, and I mean that sincerely. In the fall of 19, I guess it must have been, there was a job posting for a visiting faculty member, uh, non-tenure track, you know, just kind of visiting, whatever. And, you know, some people told me it was risky. And of course, the pandemic came about that spring as I was interviewing at Darden. And so double risky. And so, you know, life gives you opportunities and, and, and sometimes there's a bit of chaos involved. But I embraced the chaos and I said, well, damn it, I'm going to come to Darden. I'm going to do my year here. I'm going to see what happens. And uh, no better time than a pandemic to, to risk everything, right? <laughs> but it, uh, it has paid off um, tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold. Uh, Darden has provided me the milieu, the environment, uh, the place for me to ratchet up my research, to be a better thinker, to be uh, challenged by students, and to also push back on students and, and to figure out how far we can go together on particular journeys. And I, I'm fully indebted to the staff, the deans who hired me, uh, as well as the students who said that I was good at what I do. I, I continue to be here, Brett, because students believe in me, and, and I believe that wholeheartedly. That's, that's such a nice, nice thought, Anthony. I appreciate your, your sharing that. So you have a doctorate, PhD in media management, uh, it sounds like, from the University of Florida. And you're a member of the communication faculty. So here at, here at Darden, how do you get, what, what's the connection here between media management and communication? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And one I have to find myself trying to answer uh, in, in, in many different ways. Um, there are a few things here I think that we can consider in this conversation. I think for one, we all consume media. We forget about this. But if we think about what the consumer consumes most, at least in the United States, chances are it's entertainment, right? It's media, it's books, it's, it's internet, it's all of those things. So we are constantly consuming 
different sources of expression. And that's where communication comes from, right? Visuals, images, audio for listening to podcasts and things like that. And so I tackle that from the perspective of how can we measure audience engagement? How can we measure fandom? How can we begin to think about how consumers gravitate toward particular products and services? And how can we unlock potential of content, right? Which is really quite exciting in an age in which everything is measured now, right? It doesn't stop with, well, you know, Brett's movie tanked at the box office, that's it. Or Brett's movie was really, really good at the box office. We can now measure a lot of different things about his particular movie, which is quite exciting. I teach a class called Storytelling with Data. And the way that I've constructed it is I tell my class, first class, all of you are directors. All of you are mentors. All of you are Yoda. You're not heroes. You're not Luke Skywalker. Your mentors and every slide is very much a scene and you have to line it up such that you're controlling where your audience looks on a slide, the order in which they look, you're showing them what you wanted them to see and you're showing and you're not showing them what you don't want them to see. And I try to construct a lot of different parallels there. Additionally, if the next time you're watching a movie or TV show, see how long a scene lasts or, or a shot lasts. You blink chances are the scene or shot will change. It's done on purpose. Humans tend to blink every three to five seconds. And so having that kind of internal clock as you're creating slides is quite critical there, right? Any kind of public speaking as well that we cover in, in leadership communication, which is a core class in the garden curriculum, deals with uh, theater. Any kind of public speaking engagement must include a modicum, some sort of sense of theater involved pitch, tone, making audience, eye contact, finally finding friendly faces in the room, thinking about a theme that can hook audiences, how you begin with something, how you end with something. We are consumers of stories day in and day out, Brett. And I think across leadership communication, storytelling with data, and hopefully an upcoming class in media and entertainment business that I'll be teaching, it's important to look at how we tell stories, how we articulate them, and digest them across multiple angles. Well, you mentioned storytelling with data and you also teach in our MSBA program for folks who are just learning about Darden. This is the MS in Business Analytics yeah. program. It's a specialized yeah. master's uh, that Darden offers in partnership with the McIntyre School of Commerce. When I talk with the students in that program, one of the things that they talk about is how much they grow as communicators and how much emphasis in the program there is on not just extracting insights from the data sets that you're working with, but then socializing uh, those insights, telling a story uh, behind the data. And I know you have so much passion for that. Do you want to talk about uh, teaching in that program and how you work with MSBA students? Yeah, happily. You know, the MSBA program is founded on, you know, a technical competency pillar. It's quite important to have your R and Python down. I personally am wrapping up a one-year boot camp in Python that I took with Purdue University. I am a survivor. I'm thinking of that Destiny's Child song, I'm a survivor. <laughs> and it, it took a while to wrap my mind around Python. But of course, we want to make sure that students are competent and can execute and, and feel comfortable. You know, another pillar that that program stands on is how you communicate insights. A p-value means nothing to anybody in the audience unless you can articulate what it is. And what I try to emphasize, along with my dear, dear colleague, Carrie Carfagno and McIntyre, 
who is an absolute dynamite uh, instructor, is that you have to empower your audience to share results, Brett. If I share a random forest or an XG boost or something else that sounds funky, it is amazing, by the way, some of the names that they come up for some of these things. But nonetheless, if you're not empowered first to understand what that statistic is, two, what it does, and, and it, can, it can be used for classification purposes, it can be used for predictive purposes, and three, why the results impact your business and why you should share it with other stakeholders in your company, because we know that decks are always flying around, right? It doesn't just go to one team. Results and insights are constantly shared across teams. Your ability to communicate those things effectively, you're saving time, for all of the stakeholders that are involved, people are trusting you with future engagements in which you're going to be providing multivariate analyses. And three, you're empowered, right? We know that soft skills are what helps us ratchet up promotions, right? We need the technical competencies. There's no way around that. But over the course of most careers, the soft skills, the building the relationships, the, be, the ability to be a translator is incredible. And I can confidently say, having taken a Python boot camp and having taken an MBA boot camp, which I took the year before, being able to be a translator is absolutely critical. And I think you'll find in the MBA program and even in the MSBA program, your ability to listen will be ratcheted up 10, 100 fold. I really do think a true demarcation of success in the MSBA program and as well as the MBA program is the ability to listen, listen to clients, understand problems, and being able to express them in a way that's palatable for all involved audiences. Well, I want to stick with this communication theme because when I think about the case method, how students learn here at Darden, the root of that is communication. It's not just let's get to the right answer. It's Let's talk about why uh, we think that this might be the approach and you have to socialize your ideas and you have different perspectives and people pushing on each other's ideas in the mm -hmm. classroom. What's it like uh, for you to teach in the case method? I love it. I, I I am so grateful that Darden took a chance on me. I'm so grateful that Darden has kept me. This teaching method is the method that really should be employed everywhere. And I, I can't even imagine doing anything else at this point. Yes, I still do believe lecture has its place. Yes, I do believe there are other ways to learn. But, you know, I, I've been grateful to have so much time to just be able to invest in getting better and better at this method. So for those of you who are not familiar with this method, as, as Brett articulated well here, his method is very much similar to the Socratic method. We come to class, we read a case, and we ask questions. We ask questions, we ask questions, we try to build models sometimes or frameworks or ways in which that we can understand a problem. But really what it's meant to do is over a series of, of courses or classes with, with our world-class faculty, we begin to frame problems around structures and frameworks that we're comfortable with. And so it's training you, one, to be inquisitive, to be curious to ask questions. It doesn't matter if a question sounds stupid or not. Chances are the question that you have is something somebody else is thinking, but maybe too afraid or too shy to, or too shy to say. Uh, additionally, you have a sounding board in the room. So you begin to understand how something that is so darn clear to you may not be clear to everybody else. And in fact, there might be other perceptions or other beliefs or other constitutions that are in the room that you may not be aware of. And so I think it also 
breeds within all of us the opportunity to be flexible and the opportunity to be open and to really have empathy and compassion for people in the room who really may have divergent views, right? And that can be contentious sometimes. I haven't had anything too hairy, but we've had very passionate debates in class and, and students fully know that coming to class, this is on the table. And it's really meant to empower students to ask questions. Uh, I think a true hallmark of a Darden student is, is somebody who can ask good questions and framing questions in a way that can get at the answer or that can stoke a debate that's well worth the time in order to help us scaffold some sort of framework, right? To scaffold or build something that, that can help us get to an answer. And through breakout activities that you'll see in class, professors will release you in, in pairs or in groups to really further drill down on a particular issue. Um, I can tell you in LC, we have a case on the Boston Olympics in which it, it, it is mired in controversy. And there are multiple stakeholders who, who want the Olympics in Boston, other people who don't. You know, there are people who are very wealthy that are part of the project. There are people who are being marginalized, who, who are from lower socioeconomic stratums. How do we wrap our arms around this, Brett? Because, you know, on its face, it should be a no-brainer. We can quickly begin to see by teasing out different details how thorny this problem is and, and this decision is. And this is not unlike what students will face in consulting and iBanking and a lot of other places that they wind up. And so I do think the, the case method really helps you become a stronger critical thinker, a stronger abstract thinker, and a stronger conceptual thinker as well. Anthony, I appreciate your mentioning uh, the Boston Olympics case. Um, and I, I will just say for those of you who are curious about how a case comes together, this week's episode on both of our admissions podcasts, Experience Darden and Exec MBA podcast, is actually an interview with uh, Executive Director and Senior Case Researcher, Writer here at the Darden School, Jerry Yemen, uh, where she talks about how they develop these cases, what the, the process that they go through. So would highly recommend you give that a listen. Uh, but Anthony, do you have a favorite case or a case that you just really enjoy teaching, either in leadership communication or storytelling with data? Oh, just curious. Gosh. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it's good to be curious. I actually, you know what, I'm, I'm, I just wrapped up my first week in storytelling with data. I think the students are both excited and overwhelmed, which is, which is a good place to be. There's a lot of chaos and fast moving pieces, but I think it's fun. We actually just wrapped up a case on Kate Spade in which the, the, the lesson is on visuals and images and, and making something feel like a client deck and, and being able to connote meaning through images and being able to control how your audience feels about something, which is kind of weird when we think about it. But Kate Spade does that. If you go to the website, you can do that while you're listening to this podcast. You'll see there's not a lot of text on Kate Spade. It's a lot of images. It's a lot of emotions. It's a lot of feels. And very eloquently and, and, and very uh, delicately, Kate Spade is, of course, a fashion brand that is all about visuals, but also controls its narrative quite well. And I try to impart that on the students. And in the case, the Kate Spade senior management team need to think about, should we create a separate brand entirely for Kate Spade in order to grow? Should we create a brand diffusion for, for Kate Spade to grow? 
So there are all these questions surrounding what we do with Kate Spade and, and with the data itself, right? But students also have to think about how do we make this feel like a Kate Spade deck, right? How do we make this feel so that senior management is like, oh yeah, like this is totally in our wheelhouse. This feels like a Kate Spade move, right? And that's kind of how we want to guide our clients along as we're building decks, as we're building stories, being audience centric. This is something else that I preach quite a bit. And so that, that case works out really, really well, but I have a lot of fun cases. I, I, I really, not to divert too much from your question, Brett, but I, I really believe that if, if cases are funny, if they're fun, if they're interesting, if they're engaging, it really helps with the learning process. Everybody's bought in, everybody's really stoked and excited to talk about it, and the class moves really quickly. And I think that's, th those are, you know, pieces of evidence perhaps that the class has been successful and students have appreciated and digested the learning outcomes that I've set forth in the class. Well, let's talk a little bit more about storytelling with data. Uh, this is an elective that students can take. It's offered yeah. in our, our full-time MBA program as well as in our executive MBA program. We have a storytelling uh, with data elective there uh, too. Um, what do you enjoy about this class? Uh, what, what, what do you see students gain through this experience? Yeah, it's it's been a roller coaster with this class. If, if I'm being honest with you, I, I, I never thought it would be so popular. And I'm very humbled and grateful for that. Um, I, I do have to concede, Brett, that when I was asked to design a class that, that later became Storytelling with Data, I went ahead and interviewed 30 Darden MBA alumni in preparation for this. I asked them what MBAs struggle with. Uh, I asked them what MBAs are good at. I asked them what they could benefit from. And so I had a framework going in that was quite useful. I also ran two student-driven focus groups to give them the syllabus and to see what they thought. And everybody was overwhelmed but excited, <laughs> which is good because I, I wanted to kind of put their feet to the fire every class. And so I'm I'm, I'm grateful for their audience and I'm grateful for their buy-in. And so the structure of the class itself deals with uh, every class, we look at a white paper briefly, uh, something from McKinsey, Bain, Deloitte, right? The places that you guys are gonna wind up working. And we talk about what we like about these white papers and what we don't, you know, is there a good story here? Are the data visualizations clear? Do you know what they're talking about? I, these white papers are going out to clients. <laughs> so it's important that they're as lucid as possible. We then transition into case discussion, maybe about 15 or 20 minutes. I'll, I'll tell the rest of you that normally in core, you're talking about a case for upwards of 40 minutes to an hour, if not the whole time, but for a breakout period. But my class is a bit accelerated in, in, in that regard. Then we have a breakout session. The breakout session, Brett, is about 30 to 40 minutes and students are asked to get into teams. They're already assigned. And they're rotated out of different teams every week because it's helpful to work with different people and it's another challenge. And they're under a time pressure to put together a draft, nothing final. I think that would be cruel and unusual, but nonetheless, to be able to put together a four to five slide deck that gives us a story. It usually involves think cell tables or charts, which is an add-on feature that we train students on because a lot of consulting firms will use that and students will come back to class. Two groups will be randomly called on to present and there are comments, critiques, good things, bad things. We all recognize that this is drafting, but it trains students in a few things, being resilient, having stamina, 
making quick decisions and getting used to making quick decisions in groups. Also learning how to learn, learning how to troubleshoot with tech. Half the class deals with ThinkCell in PowerPoint. The other half of the class deals with Tableau. So I also understanding what it means to present in a static platform versus what it means to present in an interactive platform and all the dynamics you have to consider. And really across all of that are conversations about, are you audience centric? Are you telling me where to look? Are you telling me how to think about something uh, with an interactive dashboard, Brett? You can imagine if I give that to a client, they can begin to poke around and they may not like what they see or they may question what I've told them. So there are different dynamics at play with how intimate you need to be with your data sets when you're presenting in Tableau versus presenting in PowerPoint, right? How much control does the host or presenter have with a PowerPoint deck versus a Tableau dashboard, right? That could be readily given to a client that's readily updated. And, you know, once the scaffold is built, the client can go through it and figure out what they want. But I also think that this class offers students an opportunity to, to get used to getting feedback, right? Good, positive, whatever it is, and being able to run with it. At the end of class, um, students submit the decks and dashboards. And, and granted, it's one per class, just so we're clear. And I give them feedback. I actually give them a ton of feedback. I try to, you know, give them as much critique as I can for, for every deck. Um, I tell them what works, what doesn't work. I try to be very, very thorough and challenging with my comments, of course, with love, but nonetheless to push uh, because I know that's what they're looking for. I'll wrap this up by saying that I've been very humbled by the outcome. Um, I've had students really thank me a lot because it prepared them for their internships. They've been able to crush quick sprints in their internships. Uh, they've been under time to rest and it's been nothing for them. They've been able to work in groups more efficiently. They've understood how to incorporate feedback well. All of these wonderful spillover facts from the class. And, you know, I'm grateful that I was able to design it the way that I was, but it really comes down to the students buying in and sticking with it. Students are the lifeblood at Darden. And so if they didn't buy into this class, Brett, I don't think it would be as popular as it is. That's excellent. I'd, I'd love to hear about how we talk about this on the podcast a bunch, but how the core plus electives and all the things that students do here at Darden helps prepare them for the summer internship, but also uh, beyond that. And I did not know that you started with those focus groups and uh, talking with yeah. alums. That, that is awesome uh, to hear. Yeah. I want to come back um, to talking about media and entertainment. We promised our, our attendees that we would get there. And <laughs> here we are at this point in the conversation. I wonder how how has the, the explosion of streaming services, there's just so many streaming services now, how has that changed your work, your research, how you think about uh, the industry? It's made everything harder and it's forced me to work even faster. <laughs> it has, uh, it's been challenging, but I, I also think it's a boon as a researcher for a few things. For one, you know, I, I want to do this in the future and, and I hope to bring people in to run experiments on how they use SVOD venues, right? You can't really do that with a cable channel or service for that matter, right? Unless you go to the TV guide and you watch how people kind of watch through, you know, what upcoming shows are doing, you're coming up, but nobody's doing that anymore. So from a digital standpoint, it's quite great, I think, to be able to measure how people react to kiosks on SVOD services, right? Those rows that have all of the shows and you have to kind of go through 
and figure out things. There was a study I was involved with, uh, with Netflix just as a participant. And they asked me what I remember from different kiosks and what shows uh, come to mind after seeing a kiosk. And so I think that there are infinite opportunities to use these services as, as a stimulus, which is quite exciting as, as somebody who does some experimental research. Two, I think that, you know, these SPOD services are quite interesting because of the churn rates. Uh, it, some of these services have up to 6% churn rate, which, which might not sound like a big deal, but it can mean upwards of 30 million people uh, that, that have left and, and, and come and are kind of rotating in and out of these services. And so if you, if you think about it from a data science perspective, you have inchoate or incomplete data sets, right? And so does that create noise in models? How do you get around that? How do you think about consumer stickiness? Because this is different than perhaps a satellite service or a cable system operator, right? Uh, if you were subscribing to DirecTV or Time Warner Cable or anything like that, you got all the channels, Brett. Like it really wasn't a big deal. And between carriage fees and retransmission fees, everybody was paid. Even if nobody watched my channel on, I don't know, spoons and forks, let's say, <laughs> it didn't matter because I was part of a package, right? And so I was still getting something, even if I didn't really have much of an audience. Uh, and I think this gets to the third point. These services are now in a, in, in a highly, highly hyper-competitive environment. It's been fascinating to watch, right? We know that Disney Plus had released The Mandalorian a few years ago to tremendous fanfare but it's gone quiet since. And we also know the Disney Channel has struggled on cable as well. And so it's interesting to see all of this accelerated to the point in which the consumer now has a ton of leverage over these services. They're able to determine really what is popular, what is not popular. And these services kind of have this issue that I'm examining in one of my studies that looks at the superstar effect. The superstar effect says that there are in uh, the theory itself begins in, with a paper in 1981 by Rosen that looks at uh, athletes and celebrities and things like that. And, and there are only so many that can make outrageous salaries, right? That can be outrageously successful. Well, if you map that on to the SBOT service, then you have a situation in which there's only so much room, Brett. And in an increasingly fragmented universe, grabbing audience attention spans, convincing them to continue to invest in the parent brand because you're going to continue to get a high quality content like this uh, creates its own industry curse. Netflix has created Squid Game, Stranger Things, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black. Now what? Oh my God. If you're told that from a creative standpoint, what do you mean now? Brett, how do I eclipse this? How do I transcend this? I've created my own problem. Now have it because I continue to ratchet up the artistic quality, the storytelling quality, and the appeal of these series. And so watching that problem is quite fascinating. And I can go on and on, but those are kind of some of the primary things that I'm thinking about with this particular industry. It's really interesting to hear your, your comments there because what I was thinking about is, well, in the cable situation, you just changed the channel, uh, but in streaming video on demand, SVOD, as, as you noted, Maybe you just unsubscribe altogether. You cancel your subscription. You move somewhere else. Like that is, is a completely different um, reaction. Yeah, that's you changing the channel, Brett. You just saying, nope, I don't need Netflix. Stranger Things comes out in, uh, I think, 2024, probably toward the fall or winter. I can wait to go back to that channel if 
again. That is a very, very different media behavior that we've all had to learn. So uh, this is maybe a little bit of a hot, hot topic question, but I mean, there's so many streaming services now. It feels like every, every channel, every uh, content provider seemingly has now their own streaming service. Is, do you think we have too many streaming services? Are we at peak streaming now? Do you think it'll settle back down, continue to expand? What are your thoughts here? Yeah. So one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, and, and there's no reason for consumers to know this, is media and entertainment conglomerates have really high debt to EBITDA ratios. Warner Disco was close to five times. So what that means is a lot of these firms, simply put, are in massive debt. Let's not forget, Amazon bought the really the IP licensed rights to Lord of the Rings for $250 million. Now that's Amazon and you know, perhaps it becomes a tax write-off if they can't uh, pay, pay for it or you know, they might think of some other accounting or financial scheme uh, to be able to, to substantiate the cost. But that is an astronomical price for art. Why? Because there's a built-in consumer base. And so step one is, a lot of these services are creating not only, you know, ad supported, but also, you know, ad free services and also, you know, fast TV channels as well, you know, free ad supported, you know, television. Um, and so, yes, there are a lot of streaming services, but behind the scenes, a lot of these people have paid for a lot of content. Over the last decade, we've seen a lot of these SVOD services completely, completely go wild when it comes to buying, licensing content. And eventually they have to pay the bill, Brett. And so the second phase of the SVOD service wars, if you will, will one deal with user experience, consumer experience? Can I have serendipitous bindings? Can I, can I find something that, ah, oh, it's just, you know, it resonates with me, although there might've been an algorithm behind that. Then two, thinking about how to incorporate advertisements. It's just become painstakingly clear that if we're thinking about free cash flow and, and ways to uh, diversify businesses, it's really critical to have a steady flow of ad dollars. It helps on Wall Street. It helps to stabilize prices. A few years ago, Disney investors were cool with Bob Chappick, really Bob Iger's idea of doing uh, a streaming service with Disney, they were okay with being in the red for the next three to five years. Well, one pandemic later and just being impatient, um, shareholders were not cool with this anymore and they wanted a shift and it was freaking them out to continue to be in the red. And so I think we've also seen some malaise in the marketplace due to external headwinds, but also just unrest from investors who no longer want to deal with this. And the way to do this, to answer your question, is to monetize content. And so it's, you know, thinking about how can we get more eyeballs on content, substantiated costs. But we've also heard from Bob Iger, who has now been restored as CEO at Disney. We've also heard from David Zaslav of Warner Discovery, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. People aren't watching all of the content. That, that, that has also become ostensibly clear. And so you will see a pullback, I suspect, the kind of content that's produced. And from a marketing standpoint, this is critical because certain consumer segments may perceive these brands as different, right? 
For some of us, Netflix is bold and daring. For some of us, Netflix might be brainy or cerebral or something else. And so not only is it critical to think about what kind of content that you're producing, but how does this content control how your audience perceives your brand? And those are difficult questions to answer. The content point is really interesting because anybody who's used one of these services, you go on there and you have what is there on the main page. And now some of these have, oh, these are what's popular, mm -hmm. the curated for you. Uh, but I always wonder, like, there's got to be something out here that I don't know about. Your, your point about serendipity, right? How, how much of this discovery is actually serendipitous for users, given that these are huge catalogs of content and it can be overwhelming to try to search? It absolutely can. And I think, you know, one of the primary principles in entertainment science, there's a really good book on entertainment science that's currently sitting on my shelf. Really, really good. Uh, about 800 pages, but, but well worth the read. So they talk about one prism of entertainment being novel yet familiar. And, you know, when we think about serendipitous discoveries and, and, and things that are just amazing, I, I think back to five, five, seven years ago, my roommate burst into my office at home and was like, dude, you've got to stop everything that you're doing. You've got to watch this show. I'm listen to my, like, you know, I'm like, you know, like I've got like a revise and resubmit article. I'm, I'm prepping for teaching. Like, what is it? Like, it can't be that. Good. I would have heard of it. That show was Stranger Things. <laughs> Four hours later on the couch, I literally had to peel myself off to say, okay, like I've got to go to work, but I've got to watch the rest of this. Oh my God. And, you know, if we decom decompartmentalize or deconstruct really what Stranger Things is, it's an O to 80s nostalgia. Okay, that's that's kind of familiar. We have some Goonies references, familiar. Stand By Me, familiar, right? These are movies from the 80s. Uh, coming of Age, familiar, especially if you've watched Steven Spielberg movies. He's got a pension for coming of age stuff. All of this stuff is familiar, Brett. But man, the way that they packaged it, super novel, very novel, very different, very unique, very, very cool. We have a sense of what's going on in the storytelling. But the cool thing is, is not what will happen. It's how we get to what will happen. We know the heroes will probably win the day, but that's kind of less interesting. What we need to know is how we get there. And so if we think about the serendipitous connection, I myself, um, I just turned 36 this year. So six years ago, it was like 30. I still liked the 80s stuff, even as a 90s kid. But clearly that show was targeted toward us, you know, my, my, my roommate and myself. They, Netflix based it on other things that I had viewed, and I viewed other things that are 1980s-esque on Netflix. And so it makes sense to kind of position something that might catch our attention, but still gives us agency. And there's actually a theory that we use in a lot of video game studies, especially a lot of video game experiments called self-determination theory. And it's this idea that to have psychological well-being, you have to be competent in selecting a, an activity. You have to have autonomy in selecting that activity. You were the only one who selected this movie, perhaps, or a video game. And then relatedness, you get to share it with people. And I think the word of mouth with Stranger Things, you know, I was able to find a really cool TV series. This is getting into my roommate's head. I was the one who chose this. Nobody else told me to find this. And I got to share it with Anthony. Man, that is solid. That is so cool. And academic studies have shown time and time again 
that electronic word of mouth or any kind of word of mouth is extremely, extremely powerful in motivating us to consume all kinds of art. And so it's kind of the back end, I, I would argue, with, with serendipitous discovery. I appreciate your sharing that. We're getting some really good questions here in the Q&A. I want to ask one more question, and I, I want to pick up on a few things that have come up in the Q&A. So you mentioned this before about, you know, movies open in the theater, but they have this life that exists on streaming video, and they go yeah. lots of different directions after they've been released. Um, how are companies, entertainment companies, thinking about what's a hit? these days? Because, I mean, is it because it's a cultural phenomenon? Do a lot of yeah. people see it in the theater? Like, where, where are they? Um, how are they defining what's a hit? Absolutely. So I'm going to try to answer this in a few ways, because this this is also a perennial issue, problem, chasing the target. You know, having a hit is absolutely a moving target. I want to talk about something that you mentioned, though, and I, and I don't know if you meant to go in this direction, but it's it's, it's on point if you did. Platforms are a huge, huge challenge right now. Does every movie need to be in a movie theater? Ouch. Because it used to be the case that you did, right? If you were a serious player, if you were vying for a seat for Oscar nominations, of course you were in the movie theater. We have heard from Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese in trade press publications that have stated uh, good movies belong in theaters. I, I'm making something for a movie theater. Consumers are telling us otherwise. And so we have some friction here now, don't we? During the pandemic, I think a lot of media habits were accelerated. One being consumers' expectations of what really constitutes a movie-going experience and what doesn't. Do we need to see Gerard Butler and Jennifer Aniston on a 50-foot screen chasing after each other in a rom-com? I don't know. That's an interesting question, right? 30 years ago, we saw a lot of that with who's with You've Got Mail, with Tom Hanks and Ned Ryan and, and Sleepless in Seattle, right? Two classic movies. Today, I think they debut on a streaming service, which is quite interesting because streaming services are under no obligation, really, to share ratings, right? They're not controlled by Nielsen. They don't have agreements with, with Comscore. You, you know, they, they are very reticent to share uh, data. I listen to a ton of stand-up comedy podcasts. I, I love stand-up comedy. That's what happens when you're from New York, I think. One of the uh, spillover effects. That and liking good Italian food. And a lot of the comedians on these podcasts will talk about, you know, yeah, I gave my special to Netflix. They said it did okay. No TV ratings, no movie ratings, no special ratings, right, Brett? So, you know, very tight-lipped um, with ratings. And I think that feeds into the second portion of your question, which is what constitutes a hit? Well, it used to be that we could see TV ratings, right? We can kind of get a sense of what's going on. Of course, we still have the box office. And I think this year we'll, we'll, we're fully out of the pandemic. And I think we're getting back to movie going audiences, though there is some jerkiness with consumer demand. I know the CEO of AMC is playing around with dynamic pricing such that we might price seats in the middle of a theater more so at a higher rate than, than seats all the way up front or seats all the way in the back. I don't know, frankly, if that model's going to work. I have issues with that. That's my own belief. Um, but what constitutes a hit is always a moving target because, and I'm actually running a study on this that's looking at this. We're hoping to do in-depth interviews with creatives and with consumers. I'm working with uh, Christelle Russell, who's a professor of marketing at Pepperdine University out in gorgeous Malibu, California, uh, thinking about how 
do we anticipate pop culture zeitgeist? I mean, that's it, isn't it? Right? Are there any tells to understand why something is a hit? In the 80s, we had jazzercise and aerobics and, and a lot of funky things that came out, right? In the 90s, we had AOL and AIM and, and Netscape Navigator and, and Furbies and Tamagotchis. And how do we anticipate that a TV series right now is going to work? Back in the early 90s, Brett, NBC ran focus groups for a series that was just tanking. It was terrible. Nobody could understand what it was about. That was Seinfeld. And NBC stuck with Seinfeld. And obviously it became a perennial, emblematic, symbolic hit of the 90s. A show about nothing, right? A show about the mundane. A show about, you know, standing 20 minutes waiting for a table in a Chinese restaurant. I think one of the best episodes. Hysterical. In thinking about that, uh, there are pressures, I think, to understand, one, pop culture zeitgeist, which I'm, I'm actually quite curious in building a framework around, is it understanding social, political, consumer purchase habits? What is, can, can we create a pop culture zeitgeist or measure? And then the second thing, I think, with, with measuring popularity, and this has been inspired by gaming, is emotions and body language. And for the audience here, you guys might think I'm crazy. You're probably right. But if we go back 10, 12 years, think about the Nintendo Wii. It was measuring your ability to move, to jump around. Xbox had something similar. So the technology is there to read your body language on a couch. It's quite interesting. We also have information on weather, temperature, and other things. If you guys think about it, when you're with your loved ones, what do you always ask when you're on the couch about to watch something? What are you in the mood for? We have not done a good job in measuring. We've done it in roundabout ways. We've done it based on other TV series and movies that we've watched, right? We've got our recommendations and, and market basket analyses, perhaps. with Well, you've watched these things. Maybe we can give you this as well. But if we're really thinking about it from a conceptual standpoint, perhaps the next phase of audience measurement then is how can we anticipate consumer emotions, right? What is Brett probably in the mood for? Can we nudge him towards something based on his emotions? I can tell you Netflix and all of the services are already nudging us toward clicking on things based on what we've done on uh, the particular services. But getting a sense of what mood we're in, I, I think will also help situate what makes a hit. The last thing I'll say is ultimately what makes a hit is up to the audience. Consumer demand for content, social media postings, a lot of things that are friendly and familiar to us as marketers and audience measurement managers are, are bellwethers for whether or not a series will be a hit. I will say, though, you know, a lot of these services are less patient to cultivate art and are, are more decisive, I think, in canceling content, which is unfortunate. But I, I also think in this age in which we have a lot of content being created, an opportunity to constantly iterate on art content, which is a bit weird as an artist uh, to, to, to work on something so hard, have it accepted and then cancel. Um, but then again, that's, that's also kind of been the road that movies and, and TV shows have gone down for the last hundred years. I want to talk about advertising uh, because it feels Please. like a lot of these streaming services are also wrestling with 
do we have a tier where there's going to be ads shown, a tier where there's no ads, uh, incentivizing people? You know, it's saying like, okay, well, if you don't want ads, you can pay over here. And so all of a sudden, <laughs> um, what do you do if your company, you're trying to reach customers? How do you know you're even reaching them at all if you're giving your money to, to one of these streaming uh, services? It's really, really hard. And I'm working on a few studies with advertisements. Uh, one is trying to capture the available attention supply, uh, thinking about you know, can we use a cluster analysis to best understand where consumers spend time, where they're paying not to be spoken to by advertisers and where they're available for advertisers? It's actually a study I'm going to be working on after this <laughs> particular uh, discussion as it's, it's, uh, it's under deadline. Another study that I'm working on actually in, in our Brad lab, which is a fantastic laboratory where a lot of great work gets done, is thinking about paired advertisement experiences and thinking about if we can advertise to people together as strangers, uh, along with AI or with friends or in solo conditions to understand how advert games and, and, and doing different kinds of, of advertisement exercises can really create pronounced memorable ad experiences, right? You and I are walking in Times Square, Brett, and uh, you know, you and I are, are friends, we're buddies, our phones say so, the geolocated, and you know, we both get a, you know, an advertisement for Coca-Cola and doing an activity or something. And we get a free Coke if we can find the machine in Times Square. We're gonna remember that probably for the rest of our lives, right? And so I think that there are opportunities for advertisers in this space to be nuanced and, and to think creatively. In the SBOTS uh, marketplace, there's a ton of inventory available. And my suspicion is that you're going to see advertisements in kiosks. We're already seeing that in, on smart TVs and things like that. I also think you're going to see advertisements kind of in a closed ecosystem. I'm actually writing a business case on this because I, I think this is an interesting idea, though it hasn't happened. So I wonder if it may be a bad idea as well. <laughs> we'll see. The idea goes as such. If I'm watching, let's say Yellowstone, and let's say Kevin Costner has not departed Yellowstone, there's, there's a whole kerfuffle with that. If I'm watching it and Brett's watching it, and Kevin Costner has a jacket on, he might have a jacket on from LL Bean for Brett because Paramount, who, who is working in tandem with, let's say, Amazon retail, has figured out that Brett is likely to like LL Bean. They also know that I'm watching, and maybe I fall in a different demographic or a different stratum, or I'm just different than Brett. They realize that I'm probably more inclined to, to purchase a gap jacket. In this SVOD system, where it's a closed system, where we can see where consumers come in, we can see what they do, we can see what they watch, can we also see what they buy? Is it possible then for them to track whether or not I buy said jacket? And if that becomes part of the consumption experience and the user experience, right? And we're seeing intimations of this, right? The NFL now during certain portions of the game will have advertisements going and the game going as well, just to kind of speed up the game. And so we're seeing a lot of tinkering with different kinds of advertisement strategies. I also think because consumers are open to actually watching advertisements, if everything is upfront, right? And YouTube tries to do this, unless the videos are really long, they try to show all the advertisements up from because consumers are actually okay with that. Thinking about integrated ad experiences, my mind immediately goes to Stranger Things and 
Levin's love for Eggo waffles. It's it's such a dumb example, but I use it all the time because it's it's taking up space in my mind rent free. But that just goes to show you that you know a show I began watching six or seven years has has had such a memorable impact with me with Eggos. Um, and I actually bought a case of Eggos the first time that I saw it because I I just thought about my childhood, right? And so being able to weave in, I think, branded products and services in a way that forwards dialogue, moves dialogue along is critical. One last study I'll mention that's actually related to this deals with teasing out emotion scores from scripts. And so thinking about how happy, sad, sarcastic, different lines of a script are. Now, granted, there's some variance missing because I'm not measuring everything that's involved. But in thinking about the emotional scores from a TV series, from a show, and how that impacts TV ratings for the next series, or the next show, rather, is quite fascinating. Because then we have a situation in which we can kind of anticipate what kinds of emotional arcs really resonate with people. And that goes back to your question, Brett, of where do we put in advertisements? Perhaps we can begin to think about addressable advertising. And so I can stop getting commercials for L'Oreal and perhaps other products and services that have nothing to do with me. Maybe they have to do something with my life, but getting, getting advertisements that are meaningful and getting advertisements that are, you know, really part of the storytelling experience. Well, in light of everything that we've talked about here today, Anthony, I wonder, okay, you think about 30, 40 years ago, entertainment executive leading Warner Brothers. You think yeah. about now with everything yeah. that we talked about Skill set changed what you're looking for in an executive today versus then? Is it the same? I wonder. That's a damn good question, Brett. And, and by the way, I know that we're coming up on an hour. I have time after this, so there's absolutely no pressure for me to, to go anywhere. You have me for as long as you need me. And that goes to the audience who's asking questions as well. So um, it's really interesting. I'm laughing because I'm looking at my bookcase right now. And I can tell you as somebody who is an, an aspiring media executive in his scholarship, I have books on stats. I have books on Python. I have books on art therapy, Brett, on my bookshelf to try to best understand what's going on with audiences. I have a book on the psychology of entertainment. I have books on economics. I have books on finance and accounting. I have books on the history of art. If that gives you any sense of what I think an executive needs today, you know, it's like anything else. You need to be a bit of a Swiss army person, I think, moving forward. And I've held interviews with media executives from NBC, Warner Brothers, Paramount. I hear a lot about, you know, using Tableau, using SQL. I do think that there is a technical competency that has to be acknowledged, though I don't think that excludes you from all jobs, but, but those skill sets are in demand. You know, I also think about Disney when, when you're asking me this question, because Bob Iger has a BA in communication from Ithaca. Um, he started out as a weatherman and then moved into management. Uh, Bob Chapik has an MBA from Michigan State's business school. He spent time at Heinz. He spent time at the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency. He's a traditional MBA. We can see how he flamed out, though, though I, I will admit during Bob Chapik's tenure, I mean, he had the worst hand of cards dealt to him that I think I've ever seen a media executive be given. Uh, Bob Iger had a way easier time being given Disney from Mike Eisner. Lion King Aladdin had just debuted and, and Disney was, 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 you know, granted the animation studio was slowing down a bit in the early 2000s, but nonetheless, I, I, I mean, Disney still had a lot of, you know, potential. Um, a media executive needs to understand storytelling. 
They just do. Um, you need to go to plays. You need to see musicals. I see stand-up shows all the time. Um, my, my plan is to go through some Shakespeare books over the summer. You need to know how to tell a story. You, you, you just do. You're evaluating so much content. And, and granted, I, I've spoken so much about machine learning and multivariate analyses and other crazy things that I'm trying to do. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to know how to measure content. You need to know what resonates with people. You need to know how to produce really good cliffhangers. And you really need to know how to shift people's moods and aspirations and ideas and, and, and really leave them struck. Um, the, the wow factor just doesn't go away with entertainment. There's an anticipation and the anticipation still needs to be met. Um, but I do think that that has to be married with sound science and sound business. So being good at art, uh, reading scripts, going to plays, going to musicals, all of those things, uh, being good at business, being able to read a balance sheet. And I also think being familiar at the very least with what data science and machine learning can do, those three together, I think will arm you well in media and entertainment moving forward. All right, let's turn our attention to some questions and then we're gonna ask as always for some book recommendations. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the questions here, something I was thinking about as you were talking about like, okay, people just unsubscribing, moving on to another service. Um, and the question here is about bundling uh, these streaming services. And do you think, I mean, you see some of this in the marketplace already, is this a way to sort of, you know, capture customer interest and, you know, so you don't like what's on one channel, you go to the one streaming service, you go to the other. Do you, do you think we'll see more of this bundling of streaming services going forward? Or will it still be like, I sign up for Paramount, I sign up yeah. for this, I sign up for that. Um, what are I, your thoughts? Think event, I think eventually, because I've thought about that as well. And there are so many friction points and pain points with the consumer journey right now. Nobody's really figured it out. People have just gotten better and been better. If you've seen Netflix's kiosk, those that tends to be one of the best. I would argue if you see Amazon Prime's kiosk, tends to be one of the worst. It's it's wholesale. Uh, that's not a knock on Amazon's content, but it's it's just really hard to get through the content. I, I think Hulu does a, a bit of a better job as well. Um, I think that these particular firms are very afraid, and I think. If they were to do something like that, Brett, I think part of the agreement would would actually have to be starting to share, I think, audience ratings. And I think I think, you know, on the one hand, it could serve as a boom because you kind of have a collusion among the airlines. Right. They they compete, but they also tend to make decisions together as an industry. So that could be a boon for actually for the SBOT services in creating high barriers to entry, preventing people in getting in, although I think the barriers to entry are quite high at this point uh, to get in. But I also think that can also perhaps control price points, uh, make sure that everybody survives kind of thing. Um, but I think that there's also, there's quite a bit of fear. You know, each one feels like a conglomerate, right? Warner Brothers, Dis uh, Discovery, Disney, Netflix is now investing in a video game studio in Finland. They're, di you know, they're diversifying. They have now an ad inventory. So they're trying to ratchet up um, who they are. There's obviously NBC Universal, which is another juggernaut. So there are a lot of questions around that. And stickiness continues to be an issue. So I would not be surprised. Uh, the last thing I'll say is with the fast channel services, you're already kind of seeing that, right? We have Peacock which is a fast channel. And, you know, we also have NBC's content on Hulu. And so we're 
beginning to see the services, I think at the first point, trying to understand different price points with consumers and then probably figuring out how much stickiness there is. And I think your, your suspicions will probably be correct. I think the next phase of that is then thinking about, okay, we've expanded the, the price segmentations as much as we can. We figured out what we can do from this front. How do we bundle everything together? But um, it's a hyper-competitive field. So, you know, cooperation is something that, you know, might be difficult, but again, with without sound TV ratings, because Nielsen is in a heap of trouble right now, maybe collating around one audience measurement scheme to empower advertisers to work with the entire industry might be a path toward a bundling that we can all agree on. Also interested to hear your thoughts about just the, the debt uh, that a lot of these companies are carrying and scripted shows cost a lot of money. You could spend a, a ton of money on on a scripted show. It's a bust. Oh, my gosh. What do we do? Um, <laughs> and so um, some questions here in the chat about do you think you'll see more interactive uh, content uh, start to come or even live content, non-scripted, uh, where, you know, that, I'm not exactly sure what would fall in that category. Maybe like a whose line is it anyway? Improv type. Yeah. Of, you know, who, who knows? Uh, cooking shows are probably another example here of that. I mean, what do you think with some of these ideas? How do, how do they provide content and reduce costs? I have a mentor of mine who's a vice president at NBC, and I, I speak to him every so often. And I can remember having lunch with him a few years ago, and he was telling me like it was a four to one ratio between dollars spent on scripted and unscripted, right? So, which is incredible, right? When when you think about, you know, it might cost you know half a million or two hundred thousand dollars to 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 make a reality show, but then it, it can be close to a million dollars for something scripted on NBC. So, it was very eye-opening to really hear that. You're seeing more experimentation with that, right? Chris Rock just had a special on Netflix. I saw it. it wasn't his best, but I, I thought it was still pretty decent. Um, you know, and that was the first live uh, event, right? And this gets at a bigger question about sports rights and news rights, right? Because if we think about traditional television, they're kind of hanging by a thread, so to speak, with having live rights, right? You still got to watch NBC and see Yes, for March Madness that's going on right now, right? We have a little bit on TNT, we have a little bit on True TV, or at least we have in years past. And so, you know, live, urgent, immediate stuff still compels us to watch network television, right? That's that's kind of where they've made their bread and butter now, because I mean, even if I think of NBC, The Office, which is an amazing series, Parks and Rec, which is an amazing series, uh, The Resuscitation of Will and Grace, another amazing series, NBC has kind of had its back against the wall, right? This Is Us was popular six, seven, eight years ago. That's gone away. So struggling, stumbling, trying to figure out, you know, how can we be the sexy service that all the creatives want to work with, right? And that's the difficult thing right now is how do you pull creatives who want to work for Netflix or work for Hulu or, or work on other platforms, right? Because they have a bigger consumer base. And that's what this comes down to right? Certain services now are marshalling the kind of consumer bases that they have. Um, I think, you know, Amazon and Apple are companies not to sleep on. Oh my God. Maybe that's the big takeaway from this. Those are tech firms that a decade were rumored to get into media and entertainment, but, you know, people shrug their shoulder. What do they know about it? Well, they know quite a bit because I've watched Severance and I've watched Shrinking on Apple. And I've also watched The Shrink Next Door Apple has a Tetris movie that looks outstanding that I have to get to as well. And 
They remind me of HBO, Brett, in the 80s, not for nothing. Highly curated content, very much like walking through a museum, very much like walking through the Guggenheim. Um, and, and Apple has that feel. Uh, whereas HBO, I think, has been, uh, you know, because they're associated with Warner Discovery, they've had to kind of create a max feature, which unfortunately, I think, has also diluted HBO's brand. That's another story. Um, the long and short of it is you're seeing Amazon and Apple compete for sports rights, soccer, cricket, all of these things. If they come for basketball and baseball and football, watch out. Because Amazon, memory serves right, already has Thursday Night Football, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, if I'm ABC and NBC, I'm sweating. And I probably sweat through a few uh, face towels at this point thinking about it. That's dangerous because those tech firms can write off losses. And so if they take a loss on any of this stuff, if the licensing rights are just through the roof, which they continue to be for sports, that's devastating. I think the other thing to watch out for is population shifts. We don't really talk about this too much. Gen Z is very interesting. They don't date much. They really don't learn how to drive. They could care less about owning a car. And granted, I'm painting with broad strokes. And they're not interested in drinking much or, 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 or dating, for that matter, as I said earlier. That's a very difficult generation to market toward and to gain brand loyalty. Additionally, they're into shorter videos and they're into esports. Well, if you're an NFL or NBA executive and you're doing live content, you might be a bit freaked out. And this is something else that I think also informs why you haven't seen Netflix or some of the other big dogs in this go after them. Because there might be a shift, I think, in the next 10 years where I don't know that Gen A or Gen Z will be as quite as uh, sports passionate as past generations have been. And I don't know what that means for the leaks when I think of live stuff. News, there will always be pandemics. There will always be tragedies. I, I, I hate to say that, but news will always be consumed when, when there's something interesting. And I think for the news studios, they need to think about how news is consumed. Um, they really haven't updated their model for the last 30 to 40 years. Uh, I think of Walter Cronkite through David Muir. Nothing's really changed. Um, and I, I think they're going to have pains coming down the pike with Gen Z and Gen A. They just consume news differently. All right, Anthony. Um, this is a little bit more of a practical question. We've got people really, really were interested in what you were sharing about storytelling or yeah. going back to the yeah. previous point yeah. of the conversation. Yeah. And just curious about a few small habits for our attendees, something for them to think about as they tell stories, make yeah. presentations uh, yeah. at work. I recognize it's a very broad topic, but it's something yeah, that yeah, you yeah. might share. No, totally. So for one, be selective with your cover image and be selective with your title. Make sure that your title is actionable. Tell me what's going on in the deck. Manage my expectations. If your presentation is vague, so will my perceptions be. And then you're not really controlling anybody's perceptions. 30 people will have 30 different perceptions of your deck. Make sure that your top lines are strong right above, and you want to be sure that you use process or performance verbs. Are we accelerating growth or are we just growing? Accelerating seems really fast, doesn't it? Growing might be a bit slower. How do you want me to think about this language as you're telling me something to do in the audience? Additionally, I'm a huge fan of bottom line up front. Tell me what the situation is. Tell me what the conflict is. Threat or opportunity and then give me the recommendation for the rest of the deck. You're gonna control my expectations. I already know what's going to happen, and that's okay, because we know when we watch a movie, 20 minutes in, we know Batman's going to defeat Joker. That's not interesting. What's interesting is how we get there. 
It's the same thing in a business presentation. What is interesting is how we get there. And so thinking about that. Last thing I'll say is be audience centric. How close are they to this problem? How far away are they from this problem? What will you need to walk them through? What do they not need to know about? And most importantly, what are their key KPIs? What will drive them? If you talk about exponential smoothing with supply chain, you've got their attention. If you talk about net present value, got the finance people's attention. So think about how the audience members move based on different KPIs and see if you can incorporate them into the presentation. It's a nice nod to those who are in attendance. All right, Anthony, last question. Um, maybe a little bit of a two-parter. You mentioned an entertainment science book um, earlier. It's an 800-pager. You said you had it on yeah. your bookshelf. We got a question of like, what is the book? Um, who wrote it? Um, so people want to do some reading here. Okay, this look is, at that. This is this is heavy duty. This might be enough to kill a small child or pet. So just be careful when you're handling this. But this is entertainment science. It's, it's by a bunch of German scholars who are exceptionally gifted. Uh, one being uh, Thorsten Thoreau, who, who is widely known as, as a huge uh, academic superstar. I will say the, the, the reading in this um, is actually written fairly well for an audience that isn't perhaps academically inclined or doesn't have a PhD or however, you know, you'd like to phrase it. Um, but I do think that it is, I mean, as I'm looking at the pages, um, it, it's a lot, it's, it's quite thorough, but what I really like about it is you see how many studies go on among scholars and I find it quite inspirational for how other people conduct studies and how other people think about media and entertainment challenges and these scholars are exceptionally gifted. I, I can't say enough good things about them, but the book is called Entertainment Science, Data Analytics and Practical Theory for Movies, Games, Books, and Music, again, by Mark B. Houston and Thornston Hennig Thoreau. Uh, some of these names are tough when they're from Europe. Are, are there other books that you, you that I can, I don't know, yep, if you want please. me to recommend? We here? always ask for three book recommendations, so. Recommendations. Oh my goodness. I'm looking, I'm looking now and I'm trying to move. Well, you know, you think that you know people, and I know all of these books are really thick. My, my wife thinks I'm nuts, and she's probably not wrong. I love learning about consumer behavior. I took two or three um, consumer behavior classes. Uh, this is another one, the Cambridge Handbook of Consumer Psychology, another thick one. Don't worry, I'm going to find a small one for the third one. This is another book that really just goes through how consumers think about being goal-oriented, how they're motivated, how they learn, and, and, and thinking about how consumers consume is quite fascinating and quite interesting. But not all of the books that I would recommend have to be brainy. I think that there are some books that actually might be a bit more palatable. And there's one book. But I think that is really nice. This one is short and pithy, I promise. So again, the last one being the Cambridge Handbook of Consumer Psychology, edited by Michael Norton, Derek Rucker, and Kate Lamberton. Excellent, excellent, excellent. But if you're not looking for something so heady, and I can't blame you there because some of these books are just, even for me, are just over the top. There's one by Ricardo Illy, who is of the Illy Coffee Company. And it is simply called the Art of Excellent Products. And I really like this book, one, because it's 150 pages, so not quite the, you know, as, uh, as thick uh, and verbose as the, the other books, but 
this is a really, really succinct way to think about how to establish consumer relationships, how to relate to people, how to make something that you're proud of. And he goes into steps about what he thinks about with his own family business. And I can even I can even mention in, in the index, he talks about perfection, coherence, beauty, authenticity, simplicity, cultivation, refinement, patience, and surprise. And this is beautiful, right? It's it's beautiful because one, I am Italian American, so this I'm I'm a bit passionate about this book. But two, I think thinking about Italian coffee, it expresses so much, right? It can be just brown water if you want to treat it as brown water, fine. But we know that coffee conversations are often over divorces, graduations, successes, socialization. Uh, the first thing we do in the morning, you know, coffee serves so many different purposes for and if we can think about what it does for consumers on their consumer journeys and finding stories to tell about those products, the products can therefore be successful. And I, I really found that this book was very, very insightful uh, in a very simplistic and artful fashion. Well, Anthony, I want to thank you for your time, uh, for your energy, your passion. It's very clear uh, that you have a great deal of passion for the work that you do. Um, and appreciate your going over time here and indulging a few uh, questions to our audience members. Thank you so much for being so engaged and asking so many great questions. There's always more questions than we can get to. Um, but it's been so much fun being online, talking about streaming video on demand, some of the challenges, the opportunities in the entertainment industry. I'll give a quick plug uh, for those of you who have enjoyed these Office Towers conversations. Uh, we'll be back on April 7. Very special conversation with Emeritus Dean Bob Bruner here at the Darden School of Business. So please join us for that. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation. Anthony, thank you so much uh, for joining us for Office Hours. My pleasure, Brett. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everybody who's listening. I, I appreciate your audience. Thank you. And that was the latest installment from our ongoing Faculty Spotlight series, series we call Office Hours, featuring Professor Anthony Palumbo. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.